0: Going to turn to God's Word now. And tonight's Bible reading is from Acts chapter 16, uh, verses 6 to 40. And you can find that on page 1111 of your church Bibles. That's Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirits of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision... We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Theatera named Lydia, Adelia in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned round and said to the spirits, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept all practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The jailers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. This is God's word.
1: Good evening, everybody. My name's Phil. I'm the Associate Vicar at Christchurch. It's my pleasure to be uh, bringing this wonderful passage to us. So if you've got a finger, keep it in Acts 16, and let's pray as we begin. Lord God, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory, in all his answer to all of our need. Help us to see and to grasp hold of Christ. Amen. I don't know um, what you make of the the commentator, the social commentator, Douglas Murray. He says some pretty controversial things. I wouldn't endorse everything he said. But I was really struck by one comment that he made at a recent debate at Cambridge that I happened to listen to. It uh, um, It was a debate a couple of years back with Richard Dawkins. And he was explaining why he was no longer quite so strongly convinced by the atheism he'd embraced in his youth. And in essence, he said, look, the new atheists have been incredibly successful in convincing large numbers of people in the West that God probably doesn't exist. But where they've utterly failed is to give any meaningful substitute for how on earth you work out the the big questions of life in the absence of God. God. Uh, he's, he said this, their voice, the atheist voice, is very quiet on many things that matter to many people. The voice of atheism is at least quiet in the face of death, in the face of human tragedy, of suffering. It has very little to say to people who seek some kind of reconciliation or forgiveness or repentance. Very interesting comment from an atheist. And the thing is that people today are just as desperate, just as committed to finding answers to the, the basic questions of human existence, to find meaning to life, to, to work out what is the grand story in which, in which I live in, in this point in history where I find myself. Now, what has changed What hasn't changed is that we're still searching for the answers to the deepest questions in life. What has changed is that the monopoly, or perhaps better, the assumption, if you like, that Christianity has the answers. If you're looking for answers, you you, you look to Christianity in the West. That assumption has been swept away very successfully in the last 20 years by the new atheists. So we now live in a more open marketplace of ideas. And that doesn't worry me at all. In fact, it excites me, because Christianity has the best product, Jesus Christ. So I'm delighted that there's a much more free marketplace for for ideas as we search for meaning in life and the big questions in the West now. See, when Paul and the missionaries, as we're, we're tracking through the book of Acts, which tells the story of the spread of the Jesus movement from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, stressing three big things that... The message of Jesus is intellectually credible. He really did die and rise again. It's good for people, individuals, and for society as a whole when people turn to follow Jesus. And it spreads in a right, messy, difficult, struggle-laden way. It's never easy. And as we're seeing, when Paul and the, the first missionaries went out to proclaim the good news about Jesus. There was no uh, default Christian assumption amongst the people that they're spreading the gospel to. No, the gospel message of Jesus won over the Roman Empire because the answers it offered were better, deeper, richer, more compelling, and more true than any other answer that people had found to the fundamental questions of life. And I think you and I need to recover that confidence in our day. And so it's a wonderful thing that we're looking and seeing how Paul convinced people who really had no Christian background, no, no, Jesus has got all the answers you need. Now, if you like, the the good news about Jesus, the gospel is like a a many-faceted diamond, a beautiful, stunning jewel. There's so many different aspects to his salvation. There are so many different blessings that we find when we come to Jesus. And in Acts 16, we're going to see three particular blessings, not the only ones. I mean, Jesus is the the ultimate answer, life, death, guilt, shame, meaning, reconciliation, purpose, everything. But here in Acts 16, we're going to see three of the key blessings that you get when you come to Jesus. And three of the key blessings that you and I can offer our friends and our family as we take out the message of the gospel. Not the only ones, but some of the best. You'll see you've got points on the back there. The answer to our longing for God, freedom from captivity to evil, and salvation from judgment. Okay, so as we um, as we get back into the story and turn up Acts 16, the story, the historical account. Paul and Silas set out from Antioch, north of Jerusalem, to continue spreading the good news of Jesus throughout Phrygia and Galatia, which is uh, towards the, the north eastern corner of, uh, of where we're looking. So they're, they're up in Asia, heading um, across that, that big uh, green and then blue blob there. And now we reach a moment of enormous significance, but it's only significant if you studied geography. <laughs> because uh, we're told, verse uh, 6, Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the, the word in the province of Asia. This is the first time the gospel has gone from Asia to Europe. Now, the, the very first verse of the very first chapter of Acts declares, In my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And here we see in chapter 16, Jesus is still on the throne in heaven, still directing the spread of the good news about him. You see Jesus directing and overseeing where they go and what they do. Three times we were told in those few verses that the spirit of Jesus stopped them going somewhere and told them to go somewhere else. And the serious observant will notice the first use of the word we. uh, Luke, the author of Acts, has joined the team of missionaries at this point. Okay, let's get into the detail. Uh, the answer to our longing for God. Verse 13, as they travel across from Troas, they um, sail. If, if, you, if you read Acts, you see Luke, he likes his sea voyages. You get real detail about sea voyages. But I'm sorry, Luke, not tonight. Um, later, later we'll get lots of sea voyages. So we're going to dive into verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate of Philippi to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who'd gathered there. So no synagogue, you've got to have 10 Jewish men minimum for a synagogue. But there are a, a number of Jewish women who gather to pray by the, city, uh, by the river outside the city. And so Paul and Silas and the team, they head there on the Sabbath to proclaim the good news that God has fulfilled his promises from the Old Testament through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. We don't know how many others responded to the message and put their trust in Jesus, but Luke focuses on this one lady. He focuses on three very different people in his account in Philippi. And the first is a wealthy businesswoman, a trader from another city who's travelled over. She's not Jewish, she's a worshipper of God. In other words, she's a Gentile who's been drawn to the teachings of the God of the Bible. And she comes to pray and to hear the scriptures being read each week by the river. It was God who directed the evangelists to come to Philippi. And Luke again stresses God's sovereign work in her coming to faith. He opens her heart. Anytime anybody puts their trust in Jesus, God has performed spiritual open heart surgery on them. It's the only way it can happen. God opens our hearts so that Jesus can come in. Verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now, when you read the letter of Philippians that Paul wrote to this church a few years later, you see it's marked by appreciation of their incredible generosity. And it's no surprise. The very first thing the very first convert does is generously open her house to the whole missionary team and invite them to stay at her expense with them. The church is shaped by her generosity, I think. Now, Lydia was drawn to the riverside gathering out of a hunger for God. She'd become a worshipper of God. And now, as she meets Jesus, that hunger is satisfied. And that hunger for God, that thirst for the divine, is in every human soul. The great atheist thinker of the early 20th century, Bertrand Russell, he railed against the fact that humans seem to have what he called a cruel thirst for worship he just couldn 't deny that every human seems to need to worship at the heart of every human is a longing for a connection with the divine, and so we search for for experiences of transcendence. We all do it just in different ways. Uh, Some of us do it in the euphoria of an amazing gig, caught up with thousands of others in in the music. We do it in the purity of nature as we hike up or ski down mountains. We do it in seeking intensity of experience in sex or even in drug use. But the thing is, nothing, nothing finite can fill an infinite hole. You were made by God, And you were made for God. And nothing but God will satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Jesus came to reveal the truth about God to us. In categories we can understand God became a human. But much more wonderfully than just showing us the truth about God, he came to us as God for relationship with us. And as we come to Jesus, we meet God in all his fullness. I was listening to a, to a podcast. Actually, it was the same podcast that uh, Douglas Murray was speaking on. And they, they interviewed an Australian historian called Sarah Irving Stonebreaker, which does sound like a Marvel superhero, but um, she's a historian, an Australian historian. And um, she grew up without religious belief and came to, to study at Cambridge. And as a young adult, she was massively influenced by the New Atheist Movement, and in particular by ethicist Peter Singer. But she found that increasingly she had big questions about the claims they were making. And especially for her, it boiled down to, why on earth do we think there is an inherent moral value in every human being if we just evolved from slime, as she puts it? And she describes a sense of just absolute vertigo, listening to Peter Singer saying, there is no difference between us and the animals, thinking, well, but, but what does that mean for human meaning and, and human morality? And she, she said, quote, I started to doubt whether atheism could sustain my deepest moral convictions. And as she, as she wrestled with that, her career was taking off, but she felt increasingly empty and couldn't understand why. And then she found that as she was studying in the library, it so happened that she looked up one day to realize that her desk that she'd been assigned in her research area was right next to the theology section, as luck would have it. Um, and uh, she began reading a, a book of sermons. And she says, as she read, she discovered the biblical story of who God is and humanity, which is so profoundly corrupt and sinful and has rejected God and and yet has this yearning sense, this world is not ultimately what or who we were made for. It started to make profound sense. She talks about the the discovery that God himself in Christ lived the, the perfect life and died in our place and that story very slowly made intellectual sense to me, but was also profoundly, personally compelling. This is striking. Because it was abundantly clear that I was also yearning for something only God himself could satisfy. I later learned that famous line from St. Augustine, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, Lord. All of us share the same longing that she has. And it is in Jesus, only in Jesus, you can find the true answer to the desire of every human to connect with the divine, to be known and loved by God. It is a satisfaction you begin to experience now, and one day you'll know in all its fullness. If you're like, our hunger for God is like the desire for food that's stirred by the smell. You know how you're perfectly content, and then you, oh my goodness, Whatever it is, pizza, f- uh, filthy donna kebab, whatever, whatever, yeah, no, um, um, gourmet meal like I, I like. Um, whatever <laughs> you know, there is that smell of some foods that just gets you, and oh, oh, suddenly I'm hungry. Oh, I was perfectly content thirty seconds ago, and now I will die if I don't eat right now. And and that we're like that. And all the things of this world that we try to satisfy that hunger with, it's like chasing down different aromas, different smells, in the hope that if I, if I just find the right smell, then my hunger will be satisfied. But of course, the smell of food can never satisfy your hunger. When we come to Jesus, it's like we put real food in our mouth for the first time. Now... In this life, we only have the hors d'oeuvre. We won't enjoy the full banquet feast until eternity. But at last, in Jesus, is real food for the hunger, the thirst, at the heart of every human soul. The answer to our longing for God. The second thing we see in Philippi, the second person, freedom from captivity to evil. This person could not be more different from wealthy Lydia. Verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She is a slave. She's doubly enslaved. She's enslaved by the unscrupulous men who control her and profit from her. And she's enslaved by some evil spirit by which they say she can predict the future, whatever. Now, I think in a previous generation, a mention of demonic possession would have been a real stumbling block in a passage like this. People uh, sought to explain it away with uh, anything supernatural like this, with, with psychological or medical explanations. But these days, I think, actually, we're, we're a bit more open to it. We're less convinced the secular materialistic West knows everything. We're much more open to learning from the experiences of the majority world cultures and the majority of history. And for all the fakers and charlatans, most people, for most of history, have understood that there are such things as evil spiritual forces. And eventually, Paul is so disturbed by these demonic, dark, spiritual outbursts and so disturbed by, by the desperate plight of this girl that he casts out the evil spirit. Verse 18, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed or uh, deeply distressed that he turned round and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Did you notice Paul has no power himself in the name of Jesus. That's where the power lies. Now, we might recognize, I guess most of us, if we're honest, that there is a, a, a deep longing inside us for something, maybe you call it the divine, whatever. But few of us would recognize, I need release from captivity to evil spiritual powers. That's true. My guess is most people don't need Jesus to free them from demonic possession. But this is a picture of enslavement to evil powers, which I think we do know. Uh, Turn the talk away from possession and talk about addiction or toxic habits. Uh, And suddenly most of us would have to recognize, okay, yeah, maybe I am controlled by desires, patterns of behavior and thoughts that I'd really like to be free from, that do feel enslaving. Now, we might prefer the term unhealthy rather than evil, But the Bible is a blunt book, and God's word says we're slaves to sin. We are. We all find ourselves doing, saying, thinking stuff which causes harm to others, which we know is wrong, which we know diminishes ourselves. And in our more honest moments, we recognize must be offensive to God. And for all our abilities and our discipline, we're unable to free ourselves Now most of us can point to one thing we've quit. Maybe we've quit smoking or porn or whatever it is. But we can't rid ourselves of all our sinful desires and behaviours. We are slaves to our desires. And in this sense, the New Testament of the Bible says we do serve dark powers. Uh, Paul puts it exactly this way in Ephesians 2. he writes about all people he says as for you you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient when we follow the desires of our hearts and live out the sinful desires we wish we didn't we're, we're serving dark forces he says but Jesus has the power to free us just as he freed this girl. See, that's the promise of the gospel. Turn to Jesus, and your destiny is no longer determined, controlled by your sinful desires. None of us will be free perfectly from sin until Jesus returns and transforms our bodies. But the difference is, Jesus does give us the strength to finally say no. We're set free. Thirdly, salvation from judgment. So, when the citizens of Philippi saw the slave girl set free from her evil oppression by Jesus, they were delighted to discover a new power, a goodness stronger than the evil which had enslaved her. And so they listened intently to the message as Paul and Silas proclaimed the good news. Well, not exactly. Verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they're throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Amazing the way they dress up their greed. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods after they'd been severely flogged. They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. It's interesting. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes these words from a Roman prison, which I think will appear on the screen. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Isn't that striking? And it's a pattern that Paul had learned with Silas in a Philippian jail. The authorities might be able to chain God's messengers, but they can't chain God's message. And Paul's imprisonment is just God's way of getting the gospel to somebody else whose heart he has set his love upon. Verse 25 tells us how it happens. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, just as you and I would if we'd been savagely beaten for the gospel and unfairly imprisoned. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open he drew the sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, a moment earlier, he thought his life was gone. As jailer entrusted with the, the guarding of these people, if they go free, he gets punished. Um, quite possibly, he dies in their place. So why is he crying to be saved now that he's found out all the prisoners are still there and his life is not going to be forfeit? Why is, he, why is he saying, what must I do to be saved when he knows the danger has passed? Well, surely, as Paul and Silas sang about Jesus and presumably preached to the other prisoners, he has overheard the news of a great king who amazingly is a saviour. And so no longer is he afraid of judgment from a Roman tribunal. Now he is afraid of judgment from Almighty God, eternal death. And Paul's answer is truly wonderful. The answer, verse 31... Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in Jesus. Because Jesus has suffered the judgment in your place. It says, your every sin has been nailed to Jesus on the cross. He was lifted up on the cross. And as he hung there, suspended between earth and heaven, he took upon himself every sin. The sword of God's justice fell on him, that one man. So that no one else would need to face the sword of God's justice, if only we would trust in Him. What that means is this Imagine it's your turn to stand before God on Judgment Day. Now, imagine that God rejects you. What is it you've done that you think, if God was going to reject me on Judgment Day, what would be the one thing He would point to and say, Hey, look, I'm a forgiving God. But let's be serious. That, no. I'm forgiving, but everyone's patience runs out. And that was just too much. After all the advantages you've had, do you have any idea how perverse that was? Do you have any idea the impact it had on other people? Do you have any idea how offensive I found it? What is that thing for you? If God was going to Point to one thing and say, that is the reason why you cannot come in. Whatever that is, (coughs) Jesus took the judgment for it on the cross. It's paid in full. The sword of justice has already fallen for that crime. Okay, well, what's the next thing? If that's dealt with, what's the next most serious item on your list? Well, Jesus absorbed the punishment for that too. And the next, and the next, and the next, and the next. Jesus took the judgment of death that we deserve. So we are saved in full by trusting in him. Now, we may wonder, how is it that the death of just one man can be sufficient to satisfy the judgment deserved by all the sins of all God's people for all of history. i told one or two before. This, this precise question was asked in our doctrine of salvation lectures when I was at theological college. I'll never, ever forget the, the lecturer's response. He just stopped and looked at the, the person who asked the question and said, that's the wrong question. The real question is this. Given who it was hanging on the cross, God in human flesh, the real question is how on earth did it require more than just one drop of that blood to atone for the sins of all of us? We are saved just by trusting Jesus, for he has paid it all. Now the final verses show uh, how Paul then amazingly protects This young church as he and Silas head on to the next city. Verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens and threw us into prison. Now they want to get rid of us quietly. (laughs) No, let them come themselves and escort us out. To beat a Roman citizen without trial was a very serious offence. They could be beaten and sued by Paul. Now, I don't know whether this was Paul's plan all along, but his willingness to suffer unjust punishment means he can protect this young church. Verse 39. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and then they left. So Paul and Silas depart from Philippi with their bodies bearing the marks of their beating from the Philippian officials. But they ensured that the church bears a different mark from the officials, the the seal of their approval. The people of Philippi will have seen, as Paul and Silas are escorted from the jail by all the magistrates of the city and not thrown out, but escorted to Lydia's house where you can imagine the magistrates kicking their heels for, I don't know how long the church services were back there, but I imagine Paul took his time to encourage the believers. And then when he was good and ready, then they left. And suddenly the church has been officially recognized. The mobs will be a bit slower throw rocks in those windows now that the officials have been seen with Paul and Silas. Paul wouldn't use his rights to protect himself but he would use his rights to protect the young church. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful chapter. I love Acts 16 and I guess each of us will probably resonate a little bit more with one or other of the characters or one or the other needs expressed in this chapter. But the truth is, actually, all of us share all of the needs. All of us. All of us share a need to meet with God. All of us need to be set free from our sinful desires, and all of us need to be saved from the judgment of God. And Jesus is the answer to every human. Now maybe you've come to church Because you're exploring the search for meaning or purpose or hope. Or you long for peace or forgiveness or spirituality. Let me tell you, the answer is not a technique or a philosophy or a pathway. It is a person. Jesus and only Jesus has the answers we need. And so come to him, put your trust in him. You can do that for the first time tonight. And if you do that... Then you will leave here knowing God, set free from evil, and saved eternally from the fear of judgment. And if you do know him already, then please don't fall into the trap so many of us fall into of believing Jesus on a Sunday, but then parking him for the rest of the week, ignoring him in the day-to-day realities of life and pursuing the things of, of this world. But we'll wake up tomorrow... And Instagram will promise us experiences which will fulfill our need of the divine. And we'll be tempted to chase after those experiences like everybody else. We'll wake up tomorrow to see our feeds full of psychologists and lifestyle gurus promising freedom from toxic habits. And we'll chase after that rather than Jesus who sets us free. We'll find our feeds full of techniques of self-love and affirmation to silence the voice of guilt and the fear of judgment rather than Jesus who has suffered the punishment in our place. Only Jesus has the answer to your deepest longings. So go further, dig deeper into your relationship with him and share that good news widely with others. Jesus and only Jesus is the hope our city and our world needs. And Jesus, only Jesus, is the deepest need that you and I have. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for this um, wonderful little chapter. We thank you for these three people with their different needs and the way that Lord Jesus Christ answered each of them. Father God, help us, we pray, to turn to Christ confident that in him, In him, you meet all our greatest needs. In him, there are limitless riches. In him, there is salvation for every sinner. In his name we pray, amen.